It's good to be here again this morning. In our last lesson, we began discussing kind of some questions and, and exploring what the Bible has to say, uh, kind of in, with the idea in, in mind of the current conflict going on over in, in Israel or Palestine. This conflict started, as I mentioned last time, on October 7th of this year, uh, this, this specific conflict. Now, there's been uh, uh, issues going on over that area of the world for, for decades and centuries now, uh, you know, different countries fussing with different countries and so on and so forth. But this current conflict has captured the eyes and the ears of, of many across the globe because the, the issue, the aspect of Israel being God's chosen people has now entered into the conversation. This conflict over there going on right now started on October 7th, where this terrorist group Hamas opened up this brutal attack upon Israel, doing things unthinkable, unimaginable, yet somehow they have imagined it. And, and and executed this great evil. And so all along in this whole this whole month or two nearly two months has passed, people have been saying things like God's going to bring Israel through and, and Israel's going to survive. Israel is God's chosen people. Last week in this uh, this uh, lesson, we, we discussed two questions. We talked a little bit about the origin or the history behind the nation of Israel being established and a little bit of the why behind that establishment. And we also asked the question, was Israel still God's chosen people through their disobedience? Today, after a brief recap, we want to continue with the following questions. We want to answer the question, is modern day Israel and our modern day Jews still God's chosen people? What are some lies that people believe about Israel today, and what is the Christian's responsibility towards the current conflict in Israel? And that's what we hope to achieve today, but before we do that, we want to go to God in a word of prayer. So as I mentioned, we'll, we'll take a, a brief recap. So we talked last week about the idea of when was the nation of Israel established? Well, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was prophesied to come through Israelite lineage. The Messiah was necessary because of mankind's sin in the Garden of Eden. And we saw the first prophecy of God's plan for redemption there in Genesis 3, verse 15. And that proclamation that we talked about last week was that was giving the idea or the, or the truth that, yes, Satan would deal this devastating blow to mankind, but ultimately through the fulfillment of that Messiah, mankind would have the opportunity uh, 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 to be victorious, that God would be victorious and mankind through obedience to God could be victorious. Obedience to God today, uh, uh, for us today, began with Abraham, who was the first of the Hebrew patriarchs. Abram was called upon by God, as we know, to leave his homeland of Ur for the purpose of being the father of many nations, Genesis chapter 12. Abraham would ultimately have eight sons, but only one of those sons would be of his wife, uh, uh, Sarah, and that was the son of which God prophesied to him, Isaac. Isaac would, would beget, begot Jacob down the road, and this is where we start to see the beginning of Israel in the Bible. Through Abraham, Israel was established by Abraham's son, Jacob. Jacob would later have a son named Joseph. Joseph, through the sins of his brethren, were, was relocated to Egypt as, as a slave, but there God blessed Joseph, and Joseph uh, uh, became a mighty nation in Israel, and that was the nation, or in Egypt, and that was the nation of Israel. And that nation would be blessed by God and would become God's chosen people. <clears throat> we also asked the question, was Israel still God's chosen people through their disobedience? 
in beginning uh, the specific question um, or regarding this specific question in our lesson last week, we talked about God comparing himself to Israel as a husband was compared to his wife, according to Isaiah 54, verse 5, and Jeremiah 3, verse 14. Israel often proved to be an unfaithful spouse, and they did this by committing spiritual adultery, by cheating on their spouse with false gods. And forsaking the Lord, Jeremiah 3, verses 8 through 10. Having just caused God, who we obviously know as the faithful husband, divorced Israel, who was his unfaithful wife. God used this shocking illustration of divorce uh, to stress or to demonstrate their, their, their uh, guilt before him. But God never cut off Israel unilaterally for all time. And that's an important aspect to keep in mind. What God did was he asked that they return to him, that they repent of their wrongdoing and come back to him to experience his goodness. And Paul talks about this in Romans 11 verses 1 through 6. Romans 9 through 11 talks about Israel's rejection of God and God's relationship with Israel in that rejection. Now, Paul is showing us today that in this covenant, Israel stands rejected, mainly because, well, first of all, they, un they misunderstand the reasoning of their significance. We talked about that, and we talked about the idea that their significance was an act of service to bring forth the Messiah and to make the sacrifices necessary for that to be. Their, their, their significance was never to salvation. In the closing verses of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10, Paul shows us that most Israelites stand rejected because they have refused to submit to God's plan for redemption. They've made the choice, and this applies to Israel today. They've made the choice to stand in their own uh, position of privilege and merit. We see that demonstrated many times the Pharisees and other Jews mentioned in the time that Jesus was here and how they expected themselves to be uh, regarded as so high and mighty. And they fail to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and they've ultimately elected to attempt to establish their own salvation, their own righteousness on the basis of the law of Moses. And so as a result of these things, the picture painted from Paul through the book of Romans demonstrates that the, 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 the picture for Israel looks pretty bleak. It's pretty rough. Most of the Jews, the Bible says, stand before God accursed, Romans 9 verse 3. And they have, in fact, prepared themselves for destruction, 9 verse 22. Though they have followed after the law of righteousness, they have not attained it, Romans 9 verse 31. Consequently, they remain willfully ignorant of God's righteousness, Romans 10 verse 3. And they are, by and large, a disobedient and stubborn people, Romans 10 verse 29, in the picture of Israel today. So naturally, the question arises in the minds of, of, of certain people, people among us today, People in the church, obviously Israelites today or, or Jews today, has God cast away his people then? You know, we see that, that Israel was God's chosen people in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. And so when you look at the New Testament, you look what Paul says in Romans and what we're going to talk about in Galatians here in a little bit, has God cast away his people? And the answer to that is no, Israel is not what's 
Damn, I tell you what, I can't get my slides right. Has God cast away his people? Is Israel irredeemably lost? Has God completely given up on the Israelites and turned completely to the Gentiles? Some people, especially those of Jewish heritage or those of Jews in this time, would say yes. But the answer is no. God wants as many Jews to be saved as, as possible. Romans 11, verse 26, Paul says all of them. To that end, therefore, Paul addresses here God's desire to save Israel and how he plans to do so. Paul demonstrates that salvation is not a matter of choosing between being a Jew or Gentile. Salvation is designed for the blessing and salvation of both parties. Jew and Gentile. So yes, I do believe that Israel was still God's chosen people through their disobedience. But like I said last week, however, and that is a very significant however there, God's blessings upon his people would cease through their disobedience. When they fell away from God, his blessings on those people would cease. And we saw that with Israeli Old Testament. With the Assyrian invasion, God demonstrates that in Jeremiah, that he would send them away because they fell away from him. So God divorced them. And that's the case too today. Those blessings upon the Israelites in the Old Testament, Jews today, and the church, is that God's blessings upon those people will resume upon their obedience, their repentance, and their restoration. Hosea 3 verse 1 said, then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. And so that really leads us into the question that we left off with last week, and that is, is modern day Israel and our modern day Jews still God's chosen people? Now, through the last question, there is obviously some parallels, some strong parallels, and that opinion can already start to be formed in our heads. Galatians talks a lot about Abraham and the promise to Abraham and how it applies to his seed. But it's important to note that the promises to Abraham dealt not only with the future nation of Israel, but to the future Gentiles that would come in obedience to God. Galatians 3, verses 5 through 9, Paul says, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now these are prophecies that Paul is pointing out here referencing. Even though Israel and Christ came through Sarah, who was the free woman, Jerusalem that now is, is compared to Hagar, the bondwoman, 4 verses 21 through 31, which demonstrates to us that Christ was the culmination of the covenant with Abraham in which all nations would be blessed, 3 verses 8 and 9. The purpose of the nation of Israel was significant. They had a very important purpose, and that purpose was to bring Christ to bless the whole world. The purpose of the old law 
was to keep Israel under guard until the faith or the new law came to pass and to teach Israel through prophecy that the Christ would come. Three verses, Galatians 3 verses 21 through 25. Abraham himself shows the way for faith and righteousness without the old law and regardless of heritage. He obeyed God. And these other things didn't enter into his mind. These, these, these aspects of lineage and, and the things that, I mean, Abraham was, was promised this great promise and that didn't matter to him. What mattered to him was obeying God regardless of the promises. So then we come to our text for this series of lessons. In Galatians 6 verse 16, the Bible says, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And so this is one passage that, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, a guy I was studying with brought this up and said, see here, this is why Israel is still God's chosen people, because Paul is saying upon them and the Israel of God. And so let's look at this a little bit. Well, first of all, he talks about, Paul says, who as many as walk according to this rule. Now, I believe when he says that this rule, he talks about this rule, he's, he's emphasizing the, the idea that there's a standard. If we all had a different belief on what an inch or a foot is, we wouldn't be able to accomplish anything because there's no standard. Buildings would fall and, and hardly be able to be built. But the same is true with spiritual matters. And Paul, I believe, is emphasizing this very concept. But he says to those who walk according to this rule or truth, you might say, peace and mercy be on them and upon the Israel of God. So, is, so let's break this down here. To those who walk according to truth, peace and mercy be on the Israel of God. Israel, as we've talked about, Israel today is full of people who are in, in majority disobedient to God. The Jews today reject the Messiahship. We've already identified that. Now think about that. Think about Paul being an inspired author of these letters inspired by God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know, obviously Jesus Christ is his authority. The teachings that Paul delivers to us through these letters is by the authority of Jesus Christ. So let's think about Jesus's words in Matthew 10, verse 33, when he says, whoever denies me before men, him will I deny before my father who is in heaven. That's Jesus's words. So simple question then. Do the Jews today believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do the Jews today deny Jesus Christ? Yes, they do. So would Paul then, by authority of Jesus Christ, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, years later be saying, peace and mercy be upon them who deny Jesus Christ? Well, the answer to that is obvious. No. So I think right there, with that very idea, we can start to see that Jews today are not God's chosen people. Not, we'll get to it in a minute. We need to identify who is this Israel of God, because basically that holds the answer to this question that we're talking about. <clears throat> I believe we can find the answer in Galatians 3, verses 16 through 29, a lengthy reading, and I know the text is a little bit small. The Bible says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. 
He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hands of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for the one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which couldn't have given life, truly righteousness would have come by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are, listen, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So read what Paul says in Romans 2 verses 28, 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So here we see Paul in two different letters giving us the illustration that Jews, quote, Jews or God's people, are those who are obedient to the faith. Those who recognize that the old law and the purpose of the Israelites under the old, under the old law had the purpose of bringing them to the new law. And those who are obedient to the faith or the new law or Christ Jesus become Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, what was that promise? Well, that promise was that you would be a father of many nations, that salvation would come through you and your seed. And if we want to be that seed, then we have to be obedient to the faith, to the new law. So when Paul refers to the Israel of God... I believe he's referring to the church. I believe that when Paul says that Israel of God, he's referring to Christians all over the globe who are his chosen people. Remember 1 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10, but you, talking to Christians, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, listen, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, <clears throat> who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. 
John 8, verses 31 through 41, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And we know later on, I can't remember if it's before or after, he tells him, your father is Satan. So he's saying, you're doing the works of Satan. If you did the works of Abraham, you'd believe me. And I know that because even Abraham, as we read from Paul earlier, even Abraham, because of his faith, would have accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But modern day Jews are disobedient to God because they refuse to accept the Messiah. Jesus Christ wasn't this great military leader that they expected. Jesus Christ didn't fit the mold, didn't fit the picture that they had made on what they, what they expected or what they wanted their Messiah to look like. So God has once again divorced them. Just like he did in the Old Testament, he once again divorced them today. And he awaits their repentance and their obedience. Galatians 3 verses 13 and 14 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so I believe that these passages demonstrate to us, we can see the answer to this question through these passages as our modern-day Jews and, and, and as modern-day Israel still God's chosen people. Well, God's chosen people today is the church. And those Jews and those living in Israel today have the opportunity to once again be reunited to God and become his chosen people through their repentance and their obedience to him. So what are some lies that people believe about Israel today? Now, y'all might remember back during COVID-19, I can't remember the, the reference in my head now, but people were referring to a passage in, I can't remember if it was Ezekiel or Isaiah, that if you will humble your hearts and come before me, I'll remove, remove the pestilence from the land. And people were saying, see, this is God, that COVID-19 was God, that this is a curse from God. And we need to, as a country, we need to come together and humble ourselves and God will remove this pestilence from the land. Now, I do not believe that at all. But people had all sorts of false ideas during COVID about God's involvement in this conflict or in this, this, uh, uh, thing we were dealing with. And the same is true, as I mentioned earlier, with this current Israeli-Palestinian conflict. People are, because of Israel and their history that we read of in the Bible, people are assuming that there must be something biblical or spiritual regarding this conflict going on in, uh, in Israel right now. 
and, and maybe you've heard some as well. These are four that I've personally heard over the last few weeks that God will ensure Israel's victory, that this is the beginning of the Armageddon, that the Antichrist will emerge from within Kamas, and that Jesus' return is imminent. Now, the last one, that was one I do remember hearing about in, in, during COVID, that people were saying that, that Jesus is coming soon. <clears throat> now, for time's sake, obviously, we're not going to be able to go into depth in, in really any of these, but these are all things. And like I said, there's probably more that people are saying about these. So first of all, let's talk about the fact that God will, or the idea that God will ensure Israel's victory. Now, some really horrible things are going on over there right now. And this, this, uh, uh, Kamas, this terrorist group have been doing, committing unspeakable things. And you can look it up and, and, and read about what's going on over there, but it's horrendous. It's horrific. I mean, it's every bit, if not worse than what we talked about with the Holocaust. I mean, there's some gruesome, horrible things going on. And people are saying that no matter what we're seeing right now, that God will make sure that his people are protected. Well, first of all, God may or may not ensure Israel's victory. <clears throat> I think this is one of those things that people point to. And, and uh, I, I see, you know, just the first idea that came to my mind is people at work, they'll be like, you know, somebody will say the, the Q word, the quiet word, you know, well, I hope you have a quiet shift today. Well, that gives you one of two options. Either we get bombarded with calls and people say, see, you shouldn't have said it was going to be quiet. Or it happens to be quiet and then, you know, this is kind of the same idea that either God's go, you know, Israel's going to come forth and, and be the victor, if you want to say, and people say, see, it was God or they're not. And people aren't going to say anything, you know, and that's kind of the, what, what's going to happen here. Israel may or may not be the victor in this conflict, but we do know that God has used unfaithful governments and militaries to accomplish his purpose. But we don't know what that purpose is in this regard, especially. However, because we've recognized that Israel is not in a right, that modern day Jews are not in a right relationship with Jesus Christ, by the scriptures, we can't expect that God's going to hear their prayers. Then God's going to answer those prayers. He may very, very well bring them victorious for a certain purpose, but it's not because they are God's chosen people. It's it, God may very well take uh, vengeance on Kamas for the atrocity, the atrocities that they've committed, Romans 12, verse 19. But we can't say that God will definitively see Israel victorious. We have no ground to state that claim with any kind of certainty because they are not in that right relationship with God. And even if they were, we know that bad things happen to good people. We know that we live in an imperfect world that is full of sin. And just like the Bible promised people in Hebrews chapter 11, they said that these promises were given to these men and women of faith. They did receive that promise. It just wasn't in this world. And that very well may be true with even if Israel were in that right relationship with God. We still live in an imperfect, evil, sinful world where bad things happen. Number two is this is the beginning of the Armageddon. Now, some people believe that, that uh, 
that that's what's taking place right now in Israel, that this is the beginning of the battle of Armageddon. The battle of the Armageddon is a spiritual battle found in Revelation 16. But we know because of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 that the weapons of the Christian's warfare are not physical. And so this battle we know is a spiritual battle. Now it may be a literal battle in a spiritual plane with, or it could be allegory for something. I don't know, but we do know that it's not a physical battle with physical weapons because the Bible also says in Revelation 16, the three frog spirits are going to jump out of a dragon's mouth in Revelation 16 verse 13. And so if we expect one aspect to be physical, we have to expect it all to be physical. And we know that that's not the case. So I don't know what the battle of Armageddon will look like, or even if it will be a real battle, but I do know that it's not a physical battle stemming out of a conflict in the Middle East. But number three, that's one that I did want to talk about for a minute, is the Antichrist will emerge from within Hamas. Now, this is a, an idea, a topic that we've heard full lessons about, and, and, and it's in my mind, it's kind of a simple answer. The world, the denominational world has created this picture of what the Antichrist is, that it's going to be a man of perdition that will rise up and lead thousands of people away from God. But when reading about the Antichrist, it's important to know that the Antichrist and the man of sin or the man of perdition are the same and the same individual, essentially. But it's not an individual, it's a class of individuals. But in, in addition, many believe that this man of sin or this Antichrist will be some superhuman, uh, per, superhuman person that will rise to power in the time right before the end, right before uh, the end times start, that he will demand the worship of mankind. I remember actually a book that I, uh, I had seen at the library that was 20 years ago or more that was uh, Bill Clinton, the Antichrist. And, and that's the idea that people have about the Antichrist is that it's going to be somebody that rises to power, that's smooth talking, that's physically attractive and go on, you know, so on and so forth. And that this man will be the one that challenges the Christ. In the book, The Late Great Planet Earth, the writer Hal Lindsey says this concerning the Antichrist. He says, he will have a magnetic personality, be personally attractive and a powerful speaker. He will be able to mesmerize an audience with his oratory. The Antichrist will deify himself. He will proclaim himself to be God and demand that he be worshipped. There would be no earthly advantage in being alive when the Antichrist rules. We believe that Christians will not be around to watch the debacle brought on by the cruelest dictator of all time. In the popular premillennial theory, the Antichrist is said to appear after the rapture. Now, this is all hogwash. This is all, as Paul would call it, dung. You know, this is none of this is true. None of this is within context or accurate according to the scriptures. The Antichrist is not a single individual. John says in First John two verse twenty-eight, uh, two, two verse eighteen, that even now many Antichrists have arisen. The Antichrist also is not one person who will establish himself at the end of time because, just like John said, many Antichrists had arisen in the first century. The Antichrist is not a superhuman individual. It's not an incarnation of the devil. They were ordinary people, according to chapter 2, verse 19, 1 John. In fact, let's read 1 John 2, verses 18 through 23. I don't have a slide for this. If you want to turn to it, you can. First John 2 verses 18 through 23. 
The Bible says here, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So, as I mentioned, to put it simply, the Antichrist is not one person, but it's a classification of people. John says, who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is a Christ, he is an Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So, I guess I have to recant my statement. I guess Antichrist will arise from this conflict in Palestine because the Jews deny Christ. The Jews our modern-day Jews today are antichrists. But no, we do not see any example in Scripture of one man or one woman being this man of sin, man of perdition, or antichrist arising from a world conflict that will lead people into destruction. That is taken very much out of context. That is false doctrine, and we should, uh, we should understand why. But number four is that Jesus' return is imminent. Now, many people believe this because of Matthew 24, where it talks about the signs of the end times, like wars and rumors of wars and persecution and so on and so forth. But Jesus here, when he's talking about this, is not talking about his return. He's prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in AD 70. So those signs that we read of there are not signs of Jesus's return. In fact, do you know the signs that we see of Jesus' return? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. We're not going to have these great, big, obvious signs of Jesus' return. If we did, why spend a life in service to him? Go on, have fun. You know, temptation and their sin, I should say, is fun. It's okay to say that. Sin is fun. If it wasn't fun, it wouldn't be a temptation. There are things in this life that if I were not a Christian, and if I did not have the convictions I have, that I would partake in. But I don't because I'm a Christian. And I strive to be obedient to God. And because I want to live a life in obedience to him, not only because he deserves it for a sacrifice, but because I don't know when he's coming back. And I want to be ready. So there's not going to be these obvious signs of Jesus' return. My thoughts toward this idea of Jesus' return being imminent is the same thought I had when people said Jesus is coming soon during 2020 and COVID. People were saying it then too. Yeah, he is. He is coming soon. Sooner than it's ever been before. But we don't know when. And there's not going to be any warning. We're given the illustration of the five foolish virgins in Matthew 25 that thought they had a little bit more time, and they didn't. One day when we least expect it, Jesus is going to shut the door of opportunity, forever sealing our fate in eternity. And all we can do is make sure that we are in a right, obedient relationship with him. 
So finally this morning, what is the Christian's responsibility toward this conflict in Israel? As I mentioned, it's heartbreaking to hear the things going on over there. Ben Shapiro, who's a Jew, and he has family that lives in Israel. He goes to Israel regularly. He's, he is a Jew that, you know, follows most of the laws. He doesn't sacrifice animals or stone his kids when they're disobedient, but, but he does claim to be a Jew and obedient to the Mosaic law. So he spent a lot of time on his podcast over the last month, basically every episode's about what's going on over there. On October 9th, he had a show and he said, if I remember right, he said, this video is probably going to get removed, but I want you to see what is going on in Israel right now. And so he proceeded to show uncensored, unedited footage of the horrific things going on over there right now. And it's unhuman. It's horrifying. It's sad. In defense and retaliation, Israel has launched attacks on Hamas and the Palestinian people. And unfortunately, there have been civilian casualties. They appear to be non-intentional. But during wars and natural disasters, it leaves us wondering, what can we do to help? What is the Christian's responsibility towards, you know, political conflict, violent conflict, wars and disasters in other parts of the world? First Timothy two, or second, sorry, Second Timothy two one through seven says, therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in, in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ Jesus and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Hebrews 13 verse 3 says, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Now I know right here he's talking about Christians. He's talking about Christians and remembering those who are imprisoned and mistreated because of their faith. But I do believe that there's an example set here and in 2 Timothy and other passages that demonstrate that a Christian should be empathetic. And I believe Paul teaches us in 2 Timothy that we should be praying for these men and women. I believe that what we can do is pray for the people in Israel. And if we believe in prayer and in the power of prayer, then this is no, no problem. We need to pray for the U.S. citizens who are being held captive by Kamas in Israel. We should especially pray for our brethren, if there are any, over there. We can also be generous to the efforts there. As a church, we wouldn't obviously send funds from our treasury unless it's for fellow Christians in need. But as, as Christians, as individuals, we can seek out and send humanitarian relief for, for medical aid, for food, and things like that. But lastly, and this is, in my mind, the biggest point, we need to remember that those in Israel, both Jews and Palestinians, Palestinians are made in the image of God. These people over there fighting in this conflict right now, we've established who and why not, why or why not they are God's chosen people, but they are people who God loves. They are special people. They are people deserving of our prayers and that they survived this conflict for one purpose, and that's to recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. 
and to be obedient to his gospel. And that should be our prayer for everybody that's not in the church. Our prayer for our loved ones who are dying with cancers and diseases and, 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 and you know, doing whatever it is they're doing should be, Lord, give them time. Bring them through this cancer. Bring them through this disease, this illness, this conflict. Bring them through so that they might have another opportunity to be obedient to you. And that should be our prayer for the people over there right now, to recognize their Messiah, to recognize and to be obedient to that gospel that that Messiah died to bring us, the same gospel that the Jews on the day of Pentecost were blessed with first, according to Romans 1, verse 16. And that's the end of our study this morning. I hope it's been beneficial to you.